Hi, it's Wednesday night, and I'm actually up against a, a little bit of a clock here. I got Marv in, uh, what, 20, 35 minutes or something like that in my show, so I'm trying to make this real brief this week. The art site I saw was, uh, I saw a bunch of names, and the best one appeared to me is the Tzemach Tzedek. Not the Lubavitch one, the famous uh, Lubavitch from the 1800s. I'm not referring to him. The early one, the Tzemach Tzedek Harishan, I guess, or Kadman, Menachem Endel Krochmal, who is very interesting type, very fascinating, along the lines of the people I've been speaking about recently, like the Swiss Yaakov and the Chavis uh, and people like that, the Maram, the Menachem uh, Endel Krochmal, who wrote the Sefer Tzemach Tzedek, Shalos and Chuba Sefer, uh, which is a classic, uh, very, it's so interesting. Uh, was a big rabbi, oh, in the 1600s. I think he's born 1600 to 1660 or something like that. He lived all through, this, right through the 1600s. And um, he's buried in, in a place that I visited, although I'm a coin, I didn't go in, but with my group, we went to Nicholsburg this past summer. Um, here's somebody that, uh, what can I tell you? He's famous because of what he wrote. I wouldn't say the life is so famous. Although it's interesting in its own way, here's someone who lives in the 17th century. He's born in Poland, I think in Krakow. And uh, at that time, Krakow was a big headquarters for yeshivas. And uh, he learned by all these famous people. Now, they say he's a Talmud of the Bach. The Bach moved to Krakow in 1619. This guy was born around 1600, so it's possible, you know what I mean? He learned with someone else, and then the Bach showed up, and he learned with him. Who was uh, the Bach? Of course, it was a, a, a posik muvuk, and so this guy became Menachem and the Krochmal became, in his way, a posik muvuk. And here's somebody. This is very interesting to me. Who ends up living all of his life in Krakow? Well, no, he doesn't. He would like to. I know exactly the feeling. You find the community where everything looks like it's all the Yiddish guy is organized well, and uh, he was a, he he uh, clearly was a big Talmud Chacham and all that. He must have been related to the right people. I'm sure. And, uh, you know, to be in those circles, the elite circles. And he became a die-in there in Krakow. But when he was like 35 years old, he left. I believe he never returned. And moved from Poland, from Krakow, to uh, Moravia, which I've spoken about from time to time. Which I say we were visiting this past summer in my tour. And Moravia is like a separate Medina within Czechoslovakia. Or there's no more Czechoslovakia than the Czech Republic. The Czech Republic used to be called the Kingdom of Bohemia. There was such a place once upon a time. And the Kingdom of Bohemia had two or three states in it. And one of the states is called Moravia. And Moravia, Marin in Yiddish, in German. And Moravia was a place of like 100 communities. And each one of these communities was like 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 families, not more. And uh, they were highly organized. Uh, it's just a very interesting study. Like I think, I'm sure I mentioned this in some context or another. Because this guy can't be the first guy I mentioned about Moravia. But um, he spent his, the second half of his life from the age of 35 to, let's say, 60. He died around 60 or so, something like that. So the last 25 years of his life is when his career took off, which itself is just interesting. And he was a Rav, Av based into the old school, in a number of these communities, in Kremsier and, in, I don't know, wherever the president, and eventually in Nicholsburg where he came to chief rabbi. Moravia, in his time, we're talking about the 1630s, 40s, 50s. That's what we're talking about. This is an area where how would I expect anybody to know anything about that? This is in the belly button of Europe, literally. And it's during what they call the Thirty Years' War. Uh, at that time, Central Europe, which is Germany, the Holy Roman Empire, self-destructed. The Protestants, the Catholics went after each other. And my goodness, 
A massacred B, and then B massacred A. And when I say massacre, I mean they cut them up, they chopped them up, they burned them, they sliced them, they diced them, they roasted them. I'm talking about one Christian to another. You understand? And uh, it's a very long and involved history of what happened during the Thirty Years' War. And one part of Germany after another, one part of Central Europe after another, was devastated by different invading armies. And it's not clear to me 100% why a guy would want to move from Poland, which was not part of this. Uh, Poland was a separate country next door. They didn't have that war going on. Why would we want to move to a place like Moravia, which is, I say, smack in the middle of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which, it, which was heavily involved in the Thirty Years' War, but it happened. And um, he was in communities that were not uh, specifically invaded by armies, although I'm not going to bore you with the details. You won't believe that the strongest army in the Thirty Years' War, the strongest army in Europe was the Swedish army. Can you believe it? Stupid little Sweden. One time was a world power, Gustavus Adolphus, and uh, the famous king and the generals, and the Swedish army actually burned down part of Moravia. It's, a, it's a, quite a story. Now, without spending too much time in the history, why would I pick to talk about this person? He has a career there, 25 years, as an Avbazdin in this town, in this town, in that town. And in the old school, this is what's interesting to us today, I would argue, is we live in America usually in fairly large communities. I mean, I don't know who's listening to this, but I bet you most people probably are in the New York general area, uh, Lakewood general area, maybe they live in Israel, you know, in, in fairly large communities, uh, certain places like Baltimore. I mean, I know there are people listening in smaller communities, but for most people, the, 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 the reality is one of a fairly large community. But here in Central Europe, once upon a time, time of our ancestors, the Ashkenazi Jews, in many places, were able to maintain a very active and vivid uh, Jewish life with very small communities, like I mentioned the other day with the Chavazir, with 20 or 30 families. And so, um, this guy became a Av Beisden in Moravia, and eventually the chief rabbi of the whole Medina. And in his time, the communities, each one of which was small, used to get together like a Sanhedrin, you know what I mean? Like a, like a, 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 a meeting of all different Gaelas elected leaders, and they passed the constitution of the Jewish communities of Moravia, called the Shai Takanus, the 310 Takanus. I have a copy of it somewhere. It's uh, been printed. And uh, they were determined to try to standardize and regularize and make fair the election processes in the different Kehillahs, the Kashras in the different Kehillahs, the Chinuch in the different Kehillahs, the idea of you know regulating and organizing and standardizing, uniformitizing, and, and maintaining standards was what uh, it was common to all these uh, communities. And that itself is very interesting because we have the opposite. <laughs> Today, if you're an Orthodox Jew, you believe you belong to no organized situation whatsoever. You can be in Baltimore and have the 50 shoals, and each shul does its own thing. And each one in a very different way. In New York, Kalvachomer. In Lakewood, Kalvachomer. In Israel, double Kalvachomer. Everybody does their own thing. Whereas that is one you know trend in which we reflect, by the way, the modern Western society in which we live, in which all institutions of, uh, what shall I say, normalization in the sense of forcing norms on the local individual units have been bottle. And today we live in the era which celebrates the individual. So the Jewish communities kind of reflect that because wherever the Jews go, they pick up, you know, characteristics of the surrounding societies. Uh, but it wasn't always the case. There is a countervailing uh, uh, tendency in Jewish history, particularly those of our ancestors who lived in those countries in Europe, which had long traditions of or high organization, centralization to some degree or another, standardization, in which things are top-down, 
And Moravia was a classic example of that, in which it was felt that, you know, just to give an example, all these Shibas should learn the same as each, you know, whenever it's, you know, every year. And all uh, customs of Shabbos should be identical in all the communities. And the tunes of the Chazonim, you know, on uh, Rosh Hashanah should be all be, you know, from a selection of three songs or something like that. You know, they, they, they thought that's cool. That, that's what turned them on. That's what worked for them. Now, this Menachem and the Krochmal, he ends up first as a rabbi in Kremsir. These are all little towns you never heard of. But my point is, a town of 35 people, 45, 55 people, meaning families, was organized. They have a show, they have committees, they have a taxation system. And believe it or not, under the old regime in the Habsburg Empire, these um, communities you won't believe this, were actually kind of self-governing. They were a state within a state. They had their own mayor and their own, uh, you know, taxation and uh, things like that. I mean, to, down to the 20th century, frankly. Many people don't notice about Moravia. And so there's plenty of room for uh, Shilas and for Posek on how to run the constitution of various communities. Now, this person, Menachem and the Krochmal, he became a big rabbi. And uh, wherever he went, he set up a yeshiva, as one did in those days. Uh, this is the old system that I've mentioned over and over again, the Av Basin system in which the Rav is there not to give sermons and not to visit the sick and, you know, uh, go in the Governor's Commission for Civil Rights and that kind of thing, but rather to sit and learn most of the time, uh, even though the community is small, uh, but there's a, usually a Jewish street or two, and there's a shul, and in the shul be Talminim. Uh, from from far and wide, depending on how good you are, how, what your reputation is, and they will come to uh, study with you. And uh, the advantage is that the students who study a lot with you become senior students. You include them in your sock process, uh, and he's a, a a wonderful example of this. He even speaks about it in the introduction to his book, where he says many times I ran things by. He's proud of it. He says I used to discuss everything, every shot I got. I ran through with, uh, by my students, and, uh, you know, imagine, I'm just trying to take it in the world of yesteryear, imagine somebody living in the 1600s, and who knows where, but every week is coming mail, and it, the mail includes Shilas, and uh, as he puts it over here, let me open the book, Chaverim, Talminim, Asher Lefanei, Hayu Yoshim, Ulekoli Hamakshivim, I had students that listened to me, Lo Nosali Panim, they won't let me get away with anything, in other words, he wasn't these bossy type of rabbi where he insisted, you have to, uh, you know, uh, followed the way I learned the Gemara, all the rest of it. He welcomed criticism. You understand? But anytime a Shiloh popped up, we would discuss it. And there are many times where I held one way, had a Paskin a Shiloh, and they held another way. And at the end, I conceded that they were right. Look, he writes this in the beginning of the Sefer. Like it says in Pergilvis. They learn more from my students than anything else. And I was not ashamed to uh, say I'm wrong. And they would push me and, uh, you know, uh, push me and pull me in all kinds of different directions, and I didn't mind it. So here's somebody who's a cool dude, you know. He has to tell me and all the rest of it. Here comes a Guna question, and here comes a Mominus question, here comes a Shabbos question, because he's got all the most interesting Shabbos in the world. And, uh, he, you know, I can just see it, because I was there. I was in Nicholsburg, for example. And it's a very pretty community. You can see where the show was. I mean, everything's been destroyed and rebuilt, but, you know, you can see the physical place. And uh, it, it lends itself, you know, to quiet, uh, you know, discussion. And, I mean, screaming, you know, in a, in a quiet neighborhood. 
And um, here's a guy, and I like to say the postman brings a shila, and it was the Thirty Years' War. So uh, one of the things you get plenty of shilas on are Agona cases, because Europe in general was burping in the period we're talking about, in the middle of the 1600s, and Germany was raging the Thirty Years' War. And remember, in Poland, in 1648 and afterwards, came the Cossack Wars with Chamonolinsky, and so the Agona cases are nuts. And uh, it's very sad, uh, because... Uh, think about what I'm about to tell you. Between the Cossack massacres and the Stam anti-Semitism and the Thirty Years' War and this army and that army, how many situations are that the, the husband disappeared and who the heck knows where he's ever going to come back and the wife is stuck and what do you do? And what do you do? And um, it, 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 the, what led me to talk about this tonight is if anybody gets a hold of the Sefer, Shalos and Shuvah, Semitic, not the Lubavitch, but the first one, Menachem and the Krochmo, I'll tell you if you want to have fun, and I I don't mean this to be funny, even though it sounds funny. Just read the just read the questions. <laughs> you can have a very interesting time just reading the questions because they're so interesting. He gets them all over the place, and one of them was very vivid, and uh, but I mean many of them are very vivid. I just remember one where the lady says we're hiding from the Cossacks or something. It wasn't the Cossacks, but some anti-Semitic group, and they found them in the house and they dragged the husbands out and beat them to death. You know. With the kligars and with the axes and 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 hatchets and and the clubs. I mean, the, and the wife sees this happening in front of them, and uh, uh, you know, and they leave the women alone. They say the best torture we can give for a Jewish woman is she should be stuck without a husband, have to go begging from door to door. That's what they. That's how cruel they were, and uh, they describe all this, you know. And uh, when the basin asked them what happened to the body, the pigs ate them, the dogs ate them. The guy threw the, the bodies in a mass grave. You know, this, this, this was life in those days. And how do you know it was your husband? He said, I can tell. Ah, you say he was beaten, smashed uh, smashed in. His face was smashed in. How do you know it's him? I was there when they smashed in his face. You know, you see, this is the kind of uh, life people lived in those days. He's got these shallows coming out of his nose because he became a reputation as a big posik. And you can see that he carefully constructed his chuvas to be written very clearly. He says so when it's Agdam, but it's actually absolutely true. I've never found them hard to read. Uh, I've never found them over-complex. He really works on the style uh, for clarity and succinctness, and it's a pleasure to read. What can I tell you? Uh, that's why I've always liked the uh, Tzema Tzedek. Plus, it's, you learn a lot of history for him. Well, I'm always interested in it also. And he's famous to the degree he's made. I'll tell you the truth. Since the Tzema Tzedek Labavitz was so famous, they pushed this guy aside. But really, that's not right, because... His chubas are about 100, 200 of them, or something like that, uh, which were published in the 1600s. And were published, I would say, in the last 10, 15 years, I bought a nice edition. About 15 years ago with them, uh, not Nakudas, obviously, but, uh, you know, block print and all the rest of it. It's very easy, very easy to read. And it's a machai to read. And he was, among other things, the tribune of the poor. Over and over again, you see the richy riches want to stick it to the poor in the communities. So here you have a community of 50 people, let's say, total. Five of them have money. The other 45, like, don't have money. These are cases. The other five don't have money. And the five want to get, gain control of the community, and they should hire the rabbi, and they should hire the chazan, and the 45 don't have any say, because the argument goes like this. We're Rove Binion. You're only Rove Minion. Rove Binion means we pay the majority of the taxes of the Kehillah. Because wherever the Jews lived, they had to pay taxes to the Geisha authorities. Um, Nicholsburg, for example, L- Moravia is a place where they had great landed aristocrats, huge uh, uh, noblemen. And these noblemen would allow small Jewish communities to help with the local business, you understand? 
Uh, and uh, they actually took care of them. I mean, to be perfectly honest, they took care of them. So the Jews were always relying on the protection of, of the local lord. You understand? And it, it kind of worked. Um, the Austrian government was very anti-Semitic. The local lords would try to intervene and, and, and keep things better because from the point of view of the local lord, the local Jewish community stimulates trade, you know, helps with the taxes, helps with raising revenue, and that kind of classic situation where the Jews had to be of service and on sufferance. This is, Moravia is a, a, a perfectly uh, wonderful case of this. And in return, the Jews got some kind of security and they make a livelihood and they're glad they could do it. But the community is always very small. And that doesn't mean, you know, I'm a chlekis. So here you have, like I see over and over again, you have these shows where the 5% to have the money want to say, we should have the daya because after all, we're paying the money, the rove of it. And then the poor ones, the, the lesser ones say, loma nigara, that's the language he always uses. You know, why should we be poor? And the argument the poor are always advancing is like this. They're very interesting. The little bit that we kick in is a bigger hit in our pocket than the big money you give. So if you're a millionaire, they give $10,000 a year, 10000 is a drop in the bucket. I'm a poor guy. If I give 500 500 is a big drop in my bucket. You understand? It hurts hurts me in the pocket. And so it should go by how much it hurts you in the pocket. And what does the halacha say about that? And what does the Gemara say about that? And it's always very interesting, you know, and you see how he does it. He is the tribune of the poor. He's, he's kind of famous for it. In fact, I'm always surprised he didn't get fired. <laughs> because that's usually what happened to Rabbanim in the old days if they took up for the poor against the rich. The rich stuck it to him. And they would tell the guy and kick him out and get him arrested. That's what happened, for example, to his contemporary in Prague, to the Tosis Yontif, I spoke about here some time ago. But somehow it didn't happen to the Tzemach Tzedek, to Menachem and the Krochbal. The reason he calls it Tzemach Tzedek is Tzemach is the same gematria as Menachem, and Tzedek is the same gematria as Mendel, you know, uh, which I probably is the reason that uh, Lubavitch called it for the same reason. But uh, that's what he writes in the Haktama. Now, um, obviously, he got chalice from everywhere. So he must have moved to Moravia with a reputation of being a halachic expert. And he certainly was. Uh, and as I say before, it's a wonderful exercise to read through all these uh, kind of cases because you have every sort of unusual situation in life thrown at him. And <laughs> Here's a good one. The Goyim, and I'm just going by memory, the Goyim jack up a price of fish because everybody knows Jews are nuts about eating fish on Shabbos. So Friday, the Jews all go and invade the fish market, you know? So the the Geisha fishermen say, it's good, we'll double the price. So what's the response? If this is Moravia, Moravia make Takanas, you know, the communities really pass resolutions and, and try to enforce them. The Takanas, no Jew for the next year should eat fish on Shabbos. It's the end or six months or whatever it is. Uh, I don't remember exactly. And that idea, break the monopoly of these Geisha Mamzerim. Uh, can you do it? Can you not do it? And his own students... I remember he said his own students complained to him. He said, didn't we learn in the Gemara that you have to have fish for Shabbos and it's covered Shabbos, covered Shabbos, the Risa, and all the rest of it. And he said, forget the covered Shabbos, all the rest of it. Kick these guys in the teeth. And he quotes the famous Gemara where Ramagamliel, I think it was, or Shemagamliel, did that with the Kenan. Remember that famous case where somebody cornered the market in ancient Jerusalem on the birds and jacked up the price? And he and the Nasi said, Hama'una, I remember the line, I swear by the temple, I'll break this monopoly, and he said, I'm abolishing this carbon. <laughs> which left these, which he can do as the head of Sanhedrin, even though it's a derisa. And he you know, left all these guys standing high and dry, and uh, they had to come down lower the price and beg him for forgiveness and so forth. That's the only de- way to deal with these guys. You understand? That's the only, economics is a ruthless war. By the way, it's part of supply and demand. The Gemara says, that's the meaning of the bracha that you make in, uh, every day, three times a day. 
in the Shmon Esri, Baruch Alinu Hashem Akev Zashon Azuv, his communist was there, St. Talmud, it's Kenegad Mafkiye Sha'arim. That means Jews who corner the market, buy up the product, and jack up the price, which is unconscionable, but of course they don't care. So it's very interesting. Listen, you and I suffer from this with the high price of kosher food and all this other kind of business, you know. This is just the price of being a uh, Jewish in America. Everybody knows this. It's too expensive being Orthodox Jews when the, the complaints now. Now, um, and he, by the way, stood behind that. Like I tell you, he always takes up the cause of the afflicted. He was that kind of a Robin Hood type. Uh, I remember also a, a, a Jew was murdered, and they think they know who did it. But on the other hand, the guy, the, the relative of the murdered guy doesn't want to get involved. And he says, the guy has to get involved. We have to fight these. Like, this is a good move for him. This is interesting for us in America now. We're going through a wave of anti-Semitism. Like, they just stabbed people in Muncie and things like that. And he has a whole business. He says, you can't make the blood of a Jew hefker. Um, you have to go after every guy. Be a gol adam. Gol adam doesn't necessarily mean you kill him. Uh, it can mean that, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. It means that you have to do whatever you can to bring the, 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 the perpetrator to justice. And he said... I remember he said like this. He said, even if you don't win the case, it has to be known that if you hurt a Jew, you're going to go through court. You understand? Those are going to pain in the neck. We'll lawyer you down. We won't let it go because you can't let the, the, the dam of the Yehudi be Hefker because otherwise it'll be impossible to live here. And every Kehillah has to pay money out of their taxes if necessary to hire prosecutors and lawyers. He even says like this, the money, <laughs> the money necessary for lawyers and for Shechad. <laughs> Because that's how business is done in Central Europe long ago. You understand? It's, uh, you know, I think I told you, the Chavez Yard's father is a famous story they tell, where the, the Grand Duke of Mannheim, I think it was, Abaddon, said, to, the story goes, said to the father of Chavez Yard, the Chudashani, he said, why did Jews always bribing the judges? And he said, they're so anti-Semitic, giving them the money just brings them up to neutral. You understand? It doesn't really make you biased in favor of the Jew. It just means if you give them some money, it, he'll 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 view the case dispassionately. Uh, in the case we're dealing with, he had murders, and some guy, you know, Sutton Gavon Atzadi, some guy who wanted to save money. This is you know, in the South and we run across a lot of hypocrisy. Uh, I know we don't have that in America, not in Baltimore, but somewhere in the old days, you used to have Orthodox Jews who were hypocrites. I'm sure it doesn't exist today, but anyway, <laughs> right? Uh, and a guy said like this: I shouldn't pay to go after the murder all the rest of it. That would mean you go to Erkos. He said, forget that. Don't be a tzaddik over here. The most important part is, forget the Erkos business. You t you take him to the Erkos because you've got to get this guy convicted as a murderer. And as I said before, if you don't get him convicted as a murderer, at least make his life as miserable as he possibly can because the Jewish community cannot turn the other cheek. The Jewish community cannot just sit by and while, while, while things happen and act as if, as if they didn't happen. So um, there you go. You find somebody who is constantly being uh, uh, turned to by these communities. Um, the Kehillahs themselves, it just must have been an interesting place because in all these towns, you have like one or two streets where the Jews lived. That's how it used to be. These Jews were allowed by the local lord to be like their own city within the city. Uh, they paid their taxes, obviously, to the local lord. They don't deal that much with the Christian uh, community, I mean, except business-wise and all the rest of it. Usually there's a fence or a chain around the Jewish community of some sort or another for air of purposes and that, that kind of business. There are a million legends and stories. Oh my goodness, and Moravia is full of legends and stories of the old Kehillahs and how they interacted with the Christians, all the rest of it. You know, there's, when he was in Nicholsburg, there's a famous story from later on Mordechai Benet, 
where they went in Erev and they, and they needed a guy to uh, uh, agree that his fence could be used and he wouldn't let the fence be used because he said the neighbors are not there. And Mordechai, the story goes, Mordechai Manette went there and he said, I guess, if you let them use the, your fence for the Erev, I'll give you a bracha that the house will never burn down. And there were a bunch of fires and the house never burned down. You know, you have all these kind of mices like that. Well, in, in the Shal's Tim and Sedek, you know, Baba Mices, you have real stories. And uh, you see the real life. And he was fortunate enough never to be literally in a war zone in the sense that an army invaded where he was living. But armies were running around all over the place. And uh, it's just interesting that Moravia, which is not, it's not far from Poland, it's not, it's not adjacent to Poland, you've got to go through Bohemia, but uh, Moravia became a place where a lot of very famous Polish rabbis, Big Gedolim, ran away, um, even though it was the Thirty Years' War going on over there, because what was in Poland was worse, the Chamelnitsi massacres, the Xeris Tachbatat, the most famous example of the Shach. You know, Shach uh, was in, in Vilna, and then uh, came the, uh, the the Cossacks and the, and the and the Russians and all this terrible stuff, and he ran away and spent his last years in Helishov, which again is a small town in Bohemia, Moravia, one of these places. So you have a world class Agon living in a town with thirty families. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's, 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 it's a funny world. It's a little bit like, I'm sure it's not the same thing exactly, it's a little like what happened in America, for example, after the Holocaust. We had some pretty big scholars came out of this country, and times were different because people weren't from, but you had people who took small shoals and little positions, and actually they knew quite a lot, more than that small position would indicate. Well, in the case of Semosetic, he had, by the standards of Europe, Hushiva positions, even though the communities weren't physically big, but they were big enough and they were Hushiva enough, and as I said before, in those days, uh, Paskini Shalos was interesting because what you do is you sit near Yeshiva as the Rav, and then they send you a question from wherever they write you a Shiloh, and uh, then you toss it around with the with, with, with the uh, top Talmudim, like you say today, the Kolel guys, you know, top Talmudim, and you argue it through. And it's like it becomes like a little bit like the Gemara style, you know, this one said this, and that one said that, until the Malabinit, you understand, until they work it through in uh, Masa Matan, that's the best way. And that's probably why, I, I suppose, his uh, shouts are so clear. Uh, he's not the only one that did this, but I, he's, a, he's a wonderful example of this uh, literature. Now, as I said before, the Samuel Sadi didn't actually take off. Uh, I can't say it's a, you know, super well-known, but on the other hand, it's, it's the opposite of not well-known. And uh, I just looked in general. I have some history books at home. When response letters, things like that, they usually omit him, which is what's was kind of surprising to me, because he does not deserve deserve to be omitted. And uh, he, you know, and his uh, he was a member like of the elite. The Avodas Gershon is his son-in-law. He took over after him. Uh, these are the rabbis of yesteryear who used to be in these, uh, as I say before, small but significant communities. It goes to show you that if somebody wanted to, I'm just making this up now. Somebody wanted to today. If they don't like living, uh, like I said, I'll just make a, a, a thing up. Uh, if somebody wanted to, he said, I don't like living in Baltimore, he don't like living in Lakewood, or something like that. You could take 30 families and go move to Yenomsville and uh, you know, have a neighborhood over there. And with 30 families, you and everybody's from, and let's say everybody has had a basic education, Jewish education, you could have a very lively community with, 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 with even the numbers are not large. You understand? And it could even be Ad Kedekach. I don't think what happened in America, but it could be Ad Kedekach. They're like in Moravia. You have a basin, you have a rov, 
you have a chazan, you have a shamas, you have dayonim, you have the whole nine yards. You have a chever kaddish, of course, you have a chever this and a chever that, and uh, they gloried in having highly organized communities, even though the numbers weren't very big. I always find that very interesting, and it's important to realize when you look at these uh, books that the uh, people were great people, but the communities over which they presided were, by American standards, really kind of small. Anyway, i got to run the show. I would only say, uh, I'm mentioning this because I don't mean it to be uh, flippant or anything like that, but I would really, if, if you can, you know, I don't know who I'm lo- talking to, but if anybody can, if you're able to get a hold of uh, the Shalos Tzus Tzemach Tzedek HaKadmon, as they say over here, which is not very big, you know, it's a medium-sized book, um, and you simply say, I'm going to look through, I'm, I'm just going to go through the, the questions. Uh, the answers are actually not so long, but, you know, then you, he starts going for the Gemara and then post him and all that. That's not exactly for everybody. But the Shalos, I think for many, many people, you'd be fascinated. You know, you'd, it's like reading a novel. You understand? It's one novel after another. And you always find they're arguing in the communities, and like I say, the rich versus the poor, the Agunas, the Gaim. It's this. It's it, it reads very, very, very interestingly. People could do a lot worse than just reading the question sections of the classic books of responsa. It's probably better than a lot of junk that people read, and uh, you'd actually pick up some uh, information and uh, knowledge. So, uh, anyways, I said before, time is uh, running out. I got to get to my show, so I bid you all a good night.